people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. As ever, my name is Sam. I'm joined by Alec, and we are here as we have been uh, before. A certain kind of you know, uh, Groundhog Day kind of feeling to this uh, with David Renton, uh, who has written yet another book about uh, the far right. Goddamn, David, stop. Um, in this one, he argues that only he should be allowed to speak. Is that a fair summary? What would you say? Only is me. It? Only yeah, you. Only me. only me. No one else. Definitely. So the book is about free speech. Uh, it's making a very precise argument about the particularity of fascism in the context of that debate about free speech. Um, it makes a distinction, which I think is going to be a bit maybe opaque to some people, between no platforming and deplatforming. So let's just go over that, uh, what that distinction is one more time. Um, no platforming is when you specifically deny the right of fascists to speak. And it's a tactic that you discussed the kind of the history of um, in 1970s uh, British anti-fascism. Deplatforming is specifically targeted against hate speech, where the central understanding is that the speech will be offensive to a large part of the listener, the audience for that speech, and then that speech should be prevented from happening. Is that how you would cash out the distinction? Uh, maybe. Look, for me, there's three different terms. There's no platform and there's hate speech and there's no platform and deplatforming. Um, I think you can distinguish them along two different axes, if that's all right. Uh, firstly, no platform. Let's do this about time. No platform is a term which is used a lot in the 1970s. It's a response to the rise of the National Front. And it's a political project which says we can stop the National Front existing by taking away any opportunity they have to speak absolutely. And we can kill all their platforms and they will not exist. Um, it then carries on beyond that and has a wider usage. But that's like its core and most coherent and express um, term. Deplatforming is just a modern term, as I see it. Actually, deplatforming is a term which comes from America rather than Britain and just refers to the phenomenon of taking away platforms, which are now assumed to be online platforms from any sort of individual who may be um, on the far right, they may be a fascist, they may even be somewhere else politically. So deplatforming just means taking away social media platforms as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so the differences between the two terms, the first one's got more of a coherent anti-fascist politics behind it, and the second term, deplatforming, is more contemporary and it's more about online social media than just general fascist organising. So that's that's um, no platform and deplatforming. And, and obviously, like I'm not suggesting these terms are used precisely, but that's the kind of core distinction. Um, no platform and hate speech are um, two different arguments which are made for why you should take away a speaker opportunity from an individual or from a group. At its core, no platform says the reason you should take away a speaking opportunity from a group, let's say they're a fascist group, is because they have behind them a whole coherent theory of politics which will absolutely result in the annihilation of the democratic and et cetera rights of everyone else. So you take away their platform because they're fascists. Um, hate speech has a different rationale, although, you know, again, we're talking about kind of like ideal types, you know, sort of ideas which in which you can separate on a piece of paper, which in an individual campaign aren't necessarily so easily separate. But hate speech says, I don't want this individual to speak because if they come along, what they say will be hateful. It's going to be unpleasant to me or to people I care about. And it's that nastiness, it's unpleasantness, it's, it's potential to, to destroy the individual rights of that person. To, to, to have a space which is comfortable to them, to have dignity in that situation, um, which means that you can take away uh, the, the speaking rights from that hateful person and that hateful speech. So at the core of these, we're talking about um, two very similar acts, taking away um, speaking platforms from people, which is talking about two different justifications for them. One essentially is because they're fascist. One is essentially because they're hateful. Um, and, and and, you know, if you look at it as a historian, you'll find in the 70s and the 90s today, often those two justifications coexisting. One of the themes of my book is that actually, if you pause on them, actually, they're completely different arguments, which go in completely different um, directions. And that no platform in this anti-fascist sense, certainly talking about a fascist group or a group near it, um, is possibly a coherent justification for taking away speaking rights from, from um, unpleasant individuals. There are many great problems, philosophical and political and practical, with hate speech as an approach. 
Um, you start uh, the book with like a, a exploration of the history of free speech, and it, it seems to me that free speech is a central is is the central uh, idea that's being grappled with in the book in many ways. Who gets free speech? Why we should allow speech to people we find objectionable? How has the left his, like defined, I suppose, historically up until the contemporary period, related to free speech, and how has that, how did that begin to change? Okay. Um... Uh, I'm going to put this really crudely because, you know, life is messy, but if you look at things, you care about what happened in the past, but I'm going to put this simply in order to be, to make it neater than life has been. At its simplest form, between about 1649, 1789, the epochs of the great revolutions, and I don't know, give or take, about 1945, essentially the left, and by, by this I mean socialists, left liberals, communists, anarchists, everyone, essentially takes a free speech position. Um, that changes from about, and you, you know, I can go, th I go through, but lots of, you know, people who it's unsurprising to say that about, and, and people, perhaps it's more surprising, like go through, like Marx takes an absolute free speech position. I, I um, one of the examples which I've been thinking about since I wrote the book that isn't in there, but it's kind of just beneath the surface, is Mill's pamphlet on liberty, which is often taken as a great defense of free speech. Since I wrote the book, I've, I've been reading about him and his mates in the 19th century and what they thought they were doing. With this book on liberty and they thought they were writing in defense of uh, uh, post-chartists, socialists, secularists who, who were all being jailed um, for not being Christians and they thought they were defending the most left-wing sets of people in Britain at that time. So, so free speech is our cause, it's the left's, we have it, the other side doesn't until about 1945 and then over a set of periods there's a kind of incremental shift as the right gets more and more interested in using it I'm talking about the centre. I'm not just talking about the far right or the fascist. The centre right gets starts having a very different attitude towards free speech. Crudely, from about from about the end of the 1960s, I'm talking about the Lady Chatterley's trial, the Oz trial, trial of the Chicago Seven in the States. The, the centre right realizes they can't they can't win an argument in favour of censorship anymore. It's just too it's too difficult an argument. So they come over and they become a free speech side as well. So there's a bit of time on both the left and right, both free speech. And then you get a time, um, uh, there's a shift in around 1989, 90, the, the argument about political correctness, where the right starts saying, actually, we're more pro, pro free speech than the left. And then we get to 2015, 16, the stuff that I've, I've talked about, I'm um, not least on your podcast before with my book, The New Authoritarians, talking about how now we've got a relationship, the dominant thing in, in global politics is the relationship between the centre-right and far-right, and the glue which sticks that together, the, the basis of their relationship, um, more than anything else, it's this defence of free speech becomes the thing which enables them to talk about. So on the left, suddenly, you know, free speech has always been our cause, but we're having to kind of respond to the things which the right is doing. And, and I think what's happened is essentially you could talk about two comparable moves on the left. Move one is the move around fascism. Um, we see uh, um, campaigns against fascism and taking away platforms and speech rights from fascists as good and successful and something to emulate in other circumstances. And quite possibly that's a legitimate move. But obviously, even going that far already, that makes a certain incursion in this general principle of free speech. But then much more in the last 20 years or so, we've got the right being the people talking about free speech. And, and this argument annoys us. We find it opportunistic. We find it unbelievable. We know that while the, far, while the centre right and far right are talking about free speech, actually, they're constantly trying to take away speech from all sorts of people. So we see them using it opportunistically. And the danger is we kind of end up just mirroring their individual positions. So, you know, the, the, the centre right wants to take away uh, free speech from Muslims uh, in universities. So we say um, we're in favour of free speech for Muslims in universities and tear down and prevent. The far right and centre right are against uh, political discussion around Israel-Palestine. So we're for free speech over Israel and Palestine. The far right say, well, we're in favour of, I don't know, speaking rights for Tommy Robinson. Well, OK, well, we're, now we want to take away their spe speech rights. So all our positions kind of end up mirroring their positions we have our opposite positions to them but what we've lost is that sense of the totality now i'm not saying necessarily the totality should be we're in favor of free speech for everyone because you know i'm an anti-fascist and i'm quite persuaded by the anti-fascist arguments for taking away speech rights from fascists 
But what, what I think we've lost, once we've seen speech on the left, is just a series of individual positions. You know, you have a position on trans and turf, you have a position on Israel, you have a position on, and, and all these, you've got slightly different positions. One of the things we've lost sight of is that when you start talking about free speech today, when so much speech is online, or so much speech is controlled by the state, we've lost that sense on the left of, of, of those are antagonists who we meet again and again and again. And we've lost the ability to talk about them consistently or coherently or to have a notion of, of, of defending our speech rights against them in many different situations. And that, that's kind of, uh, my book doesn't become a complete absolute free speech book, but it does become a complete don't trust the state on free speech book. Don't trust social media on free speech. You know, they are our antagonists and you go into these battles, continue to see them as an, as an antagonist. I mean, I don't know if, I mean, you probably know this argument far better than me, but it, it's like the, the stuff you sometimes see in the States, this notion of the three-way fight. Um, don't lose sight of that sense. We're, you know, we're fighting the fascists, but the state, big capital, the police are not our allies in that battle. And seeing that when you talk about speech. Yeah, I think we said we... One of the distinctions I see with, with no platform and hate speech is no platform uh, put the agency of 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 uh, of fighting fascists in the hands of anti-fascists. Whereas with the hate speech stuff, it's it's appeals to Facebook, it's appeals to uh, governmental policy, things like this, which is a, it's a completely different relationship to how things are moved forward and done. Yeah, look, totally agree. Hate speech um, imagines um, the following people in the room. Um, a hateful person, someone who's the victim of a hateful person, and a third person who adjudicates between the two and says, one of you is right and should be allowed to speak, and one of you is wrong and should shut up. And I want to get away from this notion that, that, that um, democratic um, left-wing, whatever form of left-wing politics, needs that adjudicator to be the people with the power in that situation. That, that's, that assumption that we're in that sort of terrain always has a tendency to to reduce the power of the movements who, who rely on it. That, now, that doesn't mean that, that people might, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying everyone who uses the term hate speech is, is bad or wrong or has no good justification for doing it. Um, I get there are all sorts of reasons why this speech pops up and again and again and again. I'm just saying that, that, that it doesn't deliver what people hope it will deliver in terms of, you know, um, situations and spaces which are free of, of an antagonist who will cause them harm. People want it to, to deliver that and it doesn't deliver what, what people go to it for. I want to kind of zoom out again. Uh, you gave a kind of a history of the way in which the far right has responded to the idea of free speech. And before 1945, uh, they seem to have been entirely indifferent to it. But I, I wonder if that's actually the case. There's this uh, remark uh, that Benjamin makes about, um, you know, the fascism is it tries to give expression to uh, the masses without giving them freedom. And I wonder if there's like a kind of a way in which you might develop a more robust idea of what freedom actually means politically in order to defend other forms of freedom against the freedom of um, just kind of speaking. Um, I wonder if you think that there are other freedoms here that should be related to the idea of the freedom of speech. Um, I mean, freedom of association is the other kind of like legal one that might kind of have an obvious place in this. Um, but we might as, um, you know, revolutionary socialists of one form or other also defend a form of speech that is indifferent to the state or is indifferent, or, sorry, defend a form of freedom that is actually quite like um, different from the form of freedom that is expressible in terms of, of, of rights. Um, there's a moment in the book where you quote some, uh, I think, Supreme Court lawyers, maybe it's just kind of uh, more junior lawyers than that, talking about what it is that they want to defend. And ultimately, their defense of free speech stops at the kind of the, the necessity for defending the existence of the country. They're like, well, we can't allow the country or the nation to devolve, uh, to degrade, and therefore free speech is this kind of thing that we have to uphold or also repress in certain other ways. And you make a very good historical account of the way in which these, these two things have actually been much less, much more ambiguous than is commonly assumed in American law in particular. So they have this idea that the ultimate kind of thing that stops or justifies incursion to free speech is the nation. And I'm wondering if you think there's a concept in revolutionary left-wing thought that can fulfill this same function of being that thing that stops 
the the buck. And so I, I wonder if maybe the, the question of free speech is just kind of like a, a reflection of a deeper question about freedom in a more totally transformatory way. Um, it is. Uh, look, I, I really like where you're going. I'm, I'm, I think, though, maybe you're, you're going beyond where I actually get to in the book, if that's all right. Um, sure. <laughs> if I try and break that down a bit, look, firstly, just in terms of fascist and freedom of expression, one of the reasons why I'm making that point is I'm making it um, in quite a very short term and, and un ungeneralized sort of way. I'm just noticing something which to a historian is incredibly striking, which is that if you're used to the far right in 2021 and the way it talks, and then you read backwards to the far right in the 1930s, they don't use appeals to free speech. Um, or to be precise, they do, but in an incredibly uh, thin, flat, casual way. So that you know, this is an argument I have with you know friends who write about the histories from the 1930s. Oh, you know, Mosley talked about free speech once in passing in 1934. That proves how theory of free speech. No, it doesn't. What it actually shows is that he had available to him this ideological weapon, which the far right today would have used, and they used repeatedly and made central to their thinking. And he doesn't because he can't imagine it as something that could be any any significant use to him. So it's one of the ways, actually, we, we have a, a better sense of the past. It's not that it's today it's 100 of uh, something and then it was zero of something. It's today it's 90 of something and then it was 10 of something. So, so I'm just trying, somewhat I'm trying to do there is historicise not just the past, but really the present. Try and say that th this moment that we're in is a really weird and striking, strange moment um, in terms of um, the history of the far right in Europe since the last 100 years. And, and for people to get that, you know, it's not always been like this. Um, in terms of um, the notion of, um, in terms of the notion of freedom you're talking about, which is the positive notion of freedom, um, definitely in my book there is an idea that that we have to have an idea of, of, of generalised freedom, including freedom in the context of speech, which is broader and more generous than liberal rights will ever get us to, um, and. I think your, your reference to the nation is suggestive. I'd be lying if I said I picked that up in the book. One of the, pla one of the places I think I do pick it up in the book is when I get into the last few pages, when I start trying to talk to some extent about what a um, communist of any variety, notion of free speech worthy of descriptions of communist theory of free speech would look like. And I, I just make points which, which you don't hear enough on the left about our notion of free speech is about, it's not about an individual, like, like for Donald Trump, his notion of free speech is, free speech occurs when, when a rich person is given a, a loud megaphone and everyone else has to sit there mutely and listen to them. At the very least, our notion of free speech must at the very least um, envisage exchanges, dialogues. Um, it must um, envisage the rights of hecklers, of the people to disagree. But, but again, our notion of free speech must imagine that there are vast numbers of people who'd actually like to have audiences and audiences, um, not, not audiences on command, but opportunities to create audiences far more than people have today. People would like the idea that their speech might be relevant, they might be heard, they might be part of a democratic discussion which might change how resources are allocated, how, how their working lives, how their rest lives are run. So our notion of speech is, is busy and it's peopled and it's loud and it's polyvocal. And in all those ways, it's different from the liberal notion of free speech. Now, again, then I'm only really talking about particular. I, I totally get, I think, behind your question is an idea that the liberal notions of rights are always notions of the individual in, in a negative relationship to the state. So they imagine, well, you basically got this person, you know, you think about, um, you know, Mark talks about this on the Jewish question. Um, there are lots of anarchists who talk about this. this is a big thing. Um, it's some of the um, e um, eco-anarchists I read from the 1960s and 70s in the States. What they both have is, is a notion that in liberal, free, in liberal rights, the ultimate right of the individual is this selfish individual who basically wants to set up a factory and then be left alone and not required to pay taxes. And then because they've got their factory and they've been left alone, they've got a bit of money, now they want to own a newspaper and they want to be left alone. They don't want to have any obligations upon themselves. And now in relation to those, I think continuously different left traditions, different interesting left traditions, want rights to be positive, affirmatory, creative things. 
and maybe we need a word I think something I've made a point of before on, on one of these podcasts, I mean, the word beyond rights, rights itself is part of the problem, but envisages that sense of freedom, which is much deeper, which is much wilder, which is much more chaotic, which et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so just rights, including the right to speak, is a bad place to be and a bad place to end. It, it's not necessarily a bad place to begin, just so long as you go really fast away from it and don't stop there and go to something much more interesting quite quickly. But, but again, I, the difficult thing is these are things I kind of leave very vague and hinted at in the book. You know, um, there are other things I want to write which might go into this in more detail. But in the book, I've just, it really is on the train of free speech rights for us, for them. Why do we take them away, et cetera? It's not this, this sort of bold total conception of human liberation, which, you know, I'm quite committed to. Sure. I mean, that, that, that is why I'm asking you about it. Uh, for, for, for this exact reason that it is left kind of like the, um, it's the kind of horizon which the book is seemingly kind of oriented towards, but doesn't quite kind of get its uh, full expression. Um, you use the term, and I don't want to be the kind of podcast that just like says the word neoliberalism, but I'm going to do it anyway. So, you know, content note for the next five seconds. In neoliberalism, um, it seems like there is quite a big transformation of the way in which um, this kind of contestability of the state changes. Um, maybe you kind of disagree with that, but it seems like the period that you're talking about with this development of the no platform idea, the 70s, is the end of a post-war period in which democratic contestation at quite like a, a low, at a, I don't mean low level as in um, less, there's less of it, but at the level of individuals getting together and doing things still has some ability to change how the state functions. And we've seen uh, over the last, say, you know, kind of uh, 40 years, uh, that ability for groups of people to contest the fundamental uh, liberal uh, arrangement of economics and so on, and allocation of resources, as you put it, we've seen that, that ability wane. So in that period, it seems like the state can take a position very much in favor of free speech, because in some ways the state becomes more unassailable in the neoliberal period than it has ever been before something quite odd happens with the arrival of the internet, which is that mass associationism and forms of um, collective action um, suddenly become much more viable again, uh, but in a totally different uh, and totally kind of new ways. And I was wondering if you think that that broader history of the relationship between the state, mass association, politics as a, as a mass phenomena, both on the left, both on the right, which is existing in the post-war period, wanes during neoliberalism, and then is suddenly but strangely returning in the period of the internet. I wonder if you think this has any kind of bearing uh, on how we understand or how we should understand free speech. Okay. Um, I think I mean, there's loads there that you're asking, and I'll try and be, um, I'll, try and, I'll try and get it. But again, you know, I'm going to start from what's in the book and then maybe go beyond it. Um, what's in the book is an idea that the centre-right shifts um, towards a position of free speech, um, kind of in prior to the neoliberal period, um, because they have to, and then during the neoliberal period, towards a position that's much more actively in favour of, of, of free speech and seeing it as a kind of partisan signifier. Now, what is it about neoliberalism um, which enables the centre right, the far right, um, together to make that shift towards being in favour of free speech? I don't think it's what you said about neoliberalism, which is that neoliberalism is a um, project which takes away people's abilities to, to change the state. I think that's to misunderstand what neoliberalism does. What neoliberalism does is I read neoliberalism, again, just somewhere outside the book, I'm, I'm bringing in future writing projects to, to help answer this question, but I think you have to, is that neoliberalism um, distinguishes radically between social and economic rights, which are to be diminished, and political and democratic rights, which are to be increased. So what's actually happened, which is really weird and is ongoing, is that we've got um, neoliberal parties, which create this constant panoply of new rights. The quantity of the law continuously expands in neoliberalism. We get the creation of new rights of people the whole time, but often the rights they can enforce are quite weak and thin and useless rights. They're not the rights which people would want to have. They're not the right to be housed. 
they're not the right to a decent living standard without having to do any work. They're the rights of, for example, under Margaret Thatcher in the mid-1980s, um, you get the first attempt to create free speech rights in universities for people who are putting on far-right political events. So, so you get the creation of rights and you get more rights of individuals in relation to the state, except they're these very strange kind of useless rights, often rights which people never enforce. So we've got in Britain the Higher Education Bill, which is coming in this year. One of the reasons why they've had to bring it in is they've had this free speech right in, in universities, Section 43 of the Education Act 1985, off the top of my head. I may have got that wrong, but it's something like that. And in 35 years since Thatcher introduced it, there have been like no cases about it. So you, you created this almost phantom right, which didn't even help the people it was supposed to help. So to crank the, the history forward a bit, I think what's going on, and I think you can see it in the HE bill today, is this attempt constantly to deepen the neoliberal revolution. And if that can be done by giving people individual rights to defeat collective projects or to defeat collect collective assets, that's okay. So it's not the case that the individual is made powerless in relation to the state. It's the individual is made powerful in relation to the state if they're the selfish individual who's defeating collective political projects. Now, that, and that's why we've got the higher education bill, which is coming in and the clauses in it, which should essentially enable anyone to university anywhere because any um, infringement of free speech or academic freedom has been made. It's the sort of thing which sounds good when you hear it the first time until you realise how it's going to be used, which is by right-wing think tanks with lots and lots of money funding um, pretty desperado-type individuals who've got no real social base, kind of bludgeoning the universities and compelling them to take these people and treat them like their authorities. If they've had one column in the Daily Telegraph, then they're as senior and as relevant as your professor who's been there 30 years knows about something. So, so it's not that rights um, are weak, it's not that rights are antithetical to the state. It, the state and the right, it's the right wing start to use rights as a way of, re, of reforming politics on their terrain. Now, then we get onto the really interesting thing, if you don't mind in your question for me, which was how does the internet and the mass intrusion of politics, um, how does it destabilize this? Because it, it does in all sorts of ways. I mean, um, you can see, for example, under um, Trump, this absolute fury that, that, that um, individual blocks of capital have been able to form these, these really, really important mass platforms over which actually the state's got almost no authority or control at all. And, and this, they had this desperate desire to be able to police this on his terms, but in essence, he couldn't police it on these terms because it's been set up in the, in the epoch of neoliberal capitalism. So, so legally, how do we think about it? Certainly, how do American lawyers think about it? They go, we have free speech. Free speech is absolute. It's a constitutional value. It's the most important thing in our legal system, except if the free speech you're asking for is free speech on the side of something that's controlled by a private individual, a company, whereupon there are no free speech rights at all. So, so it's kind of weird that the private states acting in the epoch of neoliberal, private corporations acting under an epoch of neoliberal advance, be able to kind of carve themselves entirely out of the legal sphere and get themselves entitled to say, um, they set the rules. And, and because, you know, in the epoch of neoliberalism, you still get political opposition, that leads to things like the Black Lives Matter. It leads to people, millions of people making demands. We don't want these, these right-wing or far-right hate speakers on Twitter, on Facebook, etc. And actually having quite a lot of success with that. So you have this kind of really counterintuitive situation where neoliberalism says smash the state, not really smash the state, but smash the, smash the collective, hand everything over to the, to the corporations. That will mean that all our people get to speak and all the other people don't get to speak. And suddenly these corporations, weirdly, under some pressure from mass movement, are suddenly they're the woke corporations. <laughs> Obviously, they're not the woke corporations, but taking away platforms from Donald Trump. So you, you get this, that rule that opposition will always assert itself, the desire of the people, given opportunity, will express itself. It, this ends up um, sh shaping itself in ways which you've kind of thought about this from the point of view of politics in the 1970s. You know, and I saw someone old enough to have lived through the 1970s and still have a bit of that in my bones. There is no way that anyone could have or would have conceived the actual battle lines we're faced with now compared to what we thought they were. Um, 30 or 40 years ago. One of the kind of the oddest uh, features of this, um, uh, the kind of woke 
uh, woke capital kind of ideas is you get um, Tucker Carlson on Fox News with this kind of uh, panoply of um, left-wing companies. That's the that's the kind of the, the caption he gives to them. It's like Twitter is a left-wing company, Facebook's a left-wing company, you know, these kind of things. I, I, I think don't know Coca-Cola if... is a left-wing company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> but, 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 but then there's a lesson to us, which is don't, don't then just mirror back and say, oh, Coca-Cola genuinely is ours. Don't say that that Amazon genuinely is ours. Don't say that, because you know if you, if you look at I think what, there's one point in the book when I talk about what are the five highest capitalized companies in the United States right now, and it really is um, Microsoft, it's Amazon, it's Facebook, it's all these absolute rogues. And and the point is these are the companies who are responsible for for this moment in world capitalism where the rich they are the rich and they're the people who aren't paying taxes and they're the people who are burning the, the planet. And unless you want that part of your politics to absolutely disappear, you cannot accept the idea that just because, um, you know, I don't know, just because Facebook took away Donald Trump's page, suspended him for a year, that is a left-wing company. That's not, we're not going to let our notions of the left be narrowed down to that point. That would be a disaster. And I don't, I wouldn't be saying that if I didn't think there are some people on the left who kind of get in falling into that trap that we don't talk enough about um, the hideous undemocratic structures of these organisations. We don't talk enough about um, their, their constant horrible plans for, for speech, let alone for anything else. You talk about in the book about free speech in the contemporary moment becoming a kind of, I suppose, I can't remember the exact phrase, but a kind of ideological object on the right, rather than something that's sincerely fought for. And we can see this in like the kind of, uh, for example, this AP journalist, Emily Wilder, who was fired for her uh, pro-Palestine activism in college and that you give some examples in the book as well and there is a danger of getting caught in a, a, a fundamentally insincere kind of debate with the right on this um like uh, what how can we be debating free speech for people who don't actually mean it at all um and i wondered how we kind of i mean you spoke a little bit about this already with the, the work corporation stuff but how do we get beyond this kind of worky you know the spectators doing this worky leaks column um there's this ongoing churning culture war which seems to do do anything in its do everything in its power to distract from the fact that the right are, are in ascendancy in most you know all over the world and things like this how do we break through that i think very distracting uh melange of stuff well i think one of the things that we can do is actually by continuing to use the word free speech by refusing to let them go we're in favor of free speech we actually say, no you are not in favor of free speech you are calling for left-wing academics to get sacked because they don't think they don't they won't hold your party line that the British Empire is amazing. Um, and I think if we do that, and if we do that with a degree of consistency, um, we can both let cert certain groups of people that we want to speak be enabled to speak, and we can beat back attempts by the far right to, to remove our speaking platforms because we can actually be more consistent than them. Um, I'm not saying that overall the culture wars that's necessarily the same approach and I, I really don't have a general general always in the culture wars do x type approach i think you have to see them a bit more independently than that but on this um we, we you know we say look um if, if um you know if, if some government minister is in favor of noah carl um being able to speak at Cambridge university that's not free speech that's someone from the, the center right supporting someone from the far right who's relatively close to him politically. If you want to get some awards for being in favour of free speech, now tell me about what left-wing causes, um, what speaking rights, which um, left-wing causes you're speaking up for. Um, you don't get to be um, free speech unless you're speaking up for the rights of some people you disagree with. There's, there's not an excellent example of this a few months ago on the radio where a very canny BBC presenter presented the government minister with a, so you think Holocaust deniers should have free speech under your bill? And the, the government was less scrambling in contradictory kind of way about that. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, the, the last newspaper article I wrote um, was for the Jewish Chronicle. Um, the Jewish Chronicle, I'm sure every reader will remember how during uh, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party, the Jewish Chronicle was his biggest um, antagonist. And, you know, constantly um, broke stories critical of him or people in, in the party. I, I'm not suggesting the, the Jewish Chronicle under its present editor, Stephen Pollard, who writes for a bunch of right-wing papers, you know, has invited Nigel Farage, um, given platforms to him and made excuses for all sorts of people, said all sorts of terrible anti-Semitic things on the right. Is any sort of person you could work with on any sort of basis. But the reason why in order to um, 
try and embarrass the government a bit about the universities, but I wrote an article for the Jewish Chronicle um, so what, because I knew very well that this was a part of, of the rights base. They see the Jewish Chronicle as an ally. They don't want to be embarrassed by them. They find it very difficult to respond to an argument saying, um, look, your HE bill amongst its, its many problems, it's not just that it's going to um, mean that, you know, every Holocaust denier gets to speak. It also means that every anti-Semite gets to speak. It also means that if you're just like some Jewish group, that's putting on, you know, some event on the Sabbath and you want to have a room to do it. Now, under the wording of the, the university's bill that says clearly it's possible, you are not entitled to exclude people on the basis of their opinion. Well, I don't want anti-Semites in my event. I don't want, um, you know, someone who thinks David Irving's great to come along to my Sabbath when we're all just having hanging out as, as Jewish people. Well, sorry, the bill says you're not allowed to do that anymore. So it's it's trying to work away at those contradictions and and kind of embarrass the government and force the government to be saying two completely opposite things at the same time and, and to my mind you don't you're not doing this in the hope of winning the government you're not hoping to make them all you're trying to do is in favor is, is in every point of politics there's always a bunch of people watching some who go in one way some who go another and if they see those ministers saying things which are just obviously garbage and are obviously unbelievable, that strikes a chord with them. So that, that's my idea of how, you know, the sharp bits of the left should be operating in this moment, is trying to really force those contradictions wide open to the point where no one can miss them anymore. This idea of having a particular kind of audience for whom there is a, a certain kind of performance happening uh, is, I think, a really kind of uh, important one and, and, a, and a useful one for anti-fascism, given that how kind of... Uh, often uh, secretive or kind of even private it tries to make its its its, its actions um you know for, i think for some anti-fascists it would seem just as useful to have a sort of you know to defeat the fascists in a kind of a physical way um completely in private with no one else watching as it would be if that happened kind of uh, in the center of of london or something like that and in the history section, you make a, a really interesting kind of like analysis of the rock against the relationship between rock against racism and the anti-Nazi league. And I wonder if you could kind of spell out what it is that you see, not just in the kind of the, um, you don't say, okay, this one's better than this one, but there's a kind of, a, there's a much more nuanced approach to the strategy that both of them were pursuing together and the relationship between them. I was wondering if you could just kind of spell out yeah. how that worked and maybe what it kind of hints at for anti-fascists today. Okay, look, I will do that about the Anti-Nazi League and um, Rock and Stress, but if it's right, can I just do a little bit of a, a seg to it first? And it goes like this. Look, in terms of anti-fascism, um, I've noticed that, uh, that sort of one little bit of criticism I have been getting up online is from groups associated with um, particularly militant anti-fascism who feel that, that my book doesn't do enough for them. And, and I'm going to talk about Rock and Stress and the Anti-Nazi League, but I really want to signal before I get to that, I don't only take account of the bits of anti-fascist history which are close to me ideologically there yeah? and there's nothing in my book which criticizes militant anti-fascism in fact there's three pages which talk about um Afa and actually celebrate the, the way that the Afghan red action played in the 1980s in terms of physical confrontations with fascists when it felt like the rest of the left had just gone home and kind of left the issue for whatever reason so it's really this is not a book which says mass is better than militant or liberal is better than mass or it really does what i do say however is that the stakes of that particular argument uh militant mass liberal are higher when quite a lot of the people we might want to confront in terms of our anti-fascism don't look to that um watching crowd like they're fascists at all that suddenly means that the stakes of you need to get this right, whatever tactic you're going to do, do it right. And you really need to get it right. Because at different points in the past, it was absolutely obvious to most people watching that the fascists were fascists. If, if you're 1946 in Britain, it's really, really obvious that Oswald Mosley is a fascist. No one is having debate about whether the union movement are actually fascists anymore. But if some of the things that we're trying to confront today, um, call themselves non-fascists, celebrate the role played in the Second World War by Churchill, are electoral rather than trying to, to smash the state. Actually, getting it right is really, really, really important, and it's harder than it used to be. Now, this is not an argument for either for militant, it's not an argument against militant, it's not an argument for mass or for liberal, it's just an argument. Whatever anti-fascism you do, please do it really, really well, <laughs> you know, because it's harder than it used to be.
right now I'm can, I, can I sorry can I just come in so this is also yeah. in the context of increasingly this moment of in which there's a real push on the right center right most of the right to make antifa the real fascists and anti-fascists are the ones who are, are infringing on the rights of these, you know, people, right, these activists who are for this thing. And we, we've seen it particularly in the case of Andy Nguyen, and his career, but, you know, this is a, a refrain across the right and across countries. Yeah, it's, it's part of Trump, it's a major part of Trump's election message. Uh, yeah. And if we if we had an electoral right that was, that, that, you know, where it was under as much challenge as Trump was under, they would be doing the same arguments here. It's not particularly an argument at Britain at the moment, but there's nothing that will stop it from being an argument in two or three or four years' time. So we need to get it right. Okay, now, come on specifically to 70s and specifically kind of a bit that's a bit of like, for me, home territory in terms of the anti-Nazi League and rock against race and what they represent. The things I've written about before. I just make the point that, it, it, that I don't think anyone who's looked back at that period from our vantage point has ever particularly emphasised before which is that if you look at the anti-Nazi league, if you look against race, rock against racism, they actually had two completely different notions um, to how you deal with fascist speaking. In terms of the anti-Nazi league, their approach was to say um, there are fascists, if there might be fascists, for example, who, who are members of the National Front or the British movement, but have also got a day job in the local council. I'm thinking of a particular council called Jones, I think, in Manchester. And said, so, look, when you've got people like that who are organising, our role is to deny them any... Um, speaking opportunity at all so for example if someone's employed by local council we go off we try and get that individual sacked so so with the anti-nazi league the emphasis was all about taking away the platforms of fascist speech and if you look against rock against racism although it was sort of set up in opposition to um racist speeches and acts by significant musicians um david bowie eric clapton and although it tried to make life hell for them its basic approach towards speech wasn't to try and take away anyone's platform. It's just, well, other people can do that. Some of this is just a division of labour within a mass movement. You do that, happy to you doing it, we're going to do something else. And what they tried to do is they actually tried to, as it were, turn up the megaphone and increase the speech of the left. And increase the speech of the left by taking things which might otherwise be quite ordinary, um, conventional political speech, uh, newspapers, leaflets, flyers, words, and tried to say we're going to have speech taken form of music, we're going to have music and we're going to have art, we're going to express left-wing politics in this enormously range of different ways. Um, there were quite often fascists who were like NF supporters who were half round a local rock against racism group, half round a bunch of, of um, local Nazis. And one of the things which you come across again and again in the experience of rock against racism is these kind of young, white, you, you know, the, the people chosen because they're winnable. This isn't a tactic for everyone. This is a tactic for the for the kind of the weak exterior of the far right. They're invited into um, left-wing places. They listen to music. The music's all done by black artists. They're surrounded by left-wing people talking and arguing with them. And, and, and they're allowed to speak, but they're allowed to speak in a situation which is intended to be a sort of um, counter-recruitment exercise where they're recruited out of the far right, where being allowed to speak, but then being answered becomes the things which pulls them. Now, I'm really, really, really not saying rock against racism is the answer for all time. You know, um, it's, it's kind of rare that anti-fascist politics hits this absolute sweet spot of like cultural perfection, where you've got a mass cultural phenomenon already happening outside you, which is open to anti-fascist politics, but which is also like the most happening thing in culture in that country at that time for a whole generation of young people. That's not something you can recreate by an effort of will. But I'm saying it's just interesting that they had such a different approach to speech. And that I think some of that manoeuvre, some of that notion of um, increasing our speaking might be a sensible tactic for people dealing with clearly non-fascist antagonists in, in politics today that actually had a bit more spirit of rock against racism would help certain movements certain social and political movements which have focused very much on the idea of we have opponents they're hateful to us please don't let them speak please judge please university administrator take away their speaking rights a bit more of a spirit of um everyone else is going to come behind you and amplify you make sure your voices are heard everywhere might actually get them better results i think i think um the closest example to this in 
the 2010s um, was probably grime in the UK, right? But like the the thing is, they just didn't. It, would, it wasn't very good at converting people. Um, like no one on the EDL, uh, no one in the EDL was like kind of persuaded by grime that uh, they should stop being uh, racists. But I think I think what you're saying about um, levels of conviction is very important, um, or like what we kind of implied about levels of conviction. It seems like organizations like the DFLA um, and the EDL, probably less so the EDL, more the DFLA, were composed broadly of people for who had one particular grievance um, and who had very little other coherent politics at all. And if that grievance could be like understood uh, or kind of expressed in certain ways, would probably not have subscribed to the kind of package of uh, far ideals that the rest of the DFLA or the kind of the harder elements within the DFLA subscribe to. I mean, you know, that's not to kind of ignore the fact there were, you know, real genuine neo-Nazis inside the DFLA. That was a real thing. But nevertheless, there was, um, uh, that was a small kind of hardcore and then there was a a much more kind of fuzzy collection of uh, people around there. And so I wonder what should our relationship be to this kind of mass movement? does that so, so what are you saying so which kind of mass movement are you talking about now you're talking about dfla type movement we're or... talking about dfla or like an edl type movement like how so it doesn't seem to me that there are cultural handles that you can get on the edl there doesn't seem to me to be cultural handles that we could that could be in common in the same way that rock against racism was right so we kind of struggled with this in our um in the conclusion to the, the book we wrote recently the post-internet far right one which was because it wasn't really clear what the common cultural vocabulary could even be um, that could allow this kind of cultural project of anti-fascism to take place. And maybe, I mean, that's just kind of a, a question that is unanswerable because culture has fractured in the last kind of you know, 40, 50 years. But like, what, what do you, how do you see this kind of the stakes of this now? Okay, in terms of the DFLA, I thought one of the things that was really interesting was how groups like Football Lads and Masters Against Fascism tried to relate to them because they they thought they had a common cultural um, space, which was football, actually. So they tried to reinvigorate left-wing, and they have tried to invigorate left-wing um, spaces around football as the place where you can win an argument. Um, I think that's happening. I think in some places it's successful, and I don't think that's a bad approach. Um, I have to say, I kind of trusted a bit more than what you're saying, if you don't mind, because you made it sound like people would join DFLA whatsoever because there was an in- initial grievance which was pulling them in. And then therefore, because it was one thing, therefore their commitment to it was relatively soft. I, I have to say that's not quite how I read the, the DFLA, that um, all, all the EDL which preceded it, I, I think that, that what brought them in wasn't a thing, a grievance. It's not like the 60s and 70s where people came into foreign groups had a grievance about immigration. And then people generalise from immigration to other stuff. So you'd go from the specific to the general. I think often what brought people into those groups was this general sense that was really quite diffuse and diverse, that Britain was going down the pan. This was the fault of Muslims. And this had lots and lots of different expressions, including they weren't entitled to, to have their English flags up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I don't think that it was, it was a case to just knock out that one route in and, and you defeat them. Um, and I think that's, I think you can kind of see that as well in the way in which that style of organising has hung around. It, it's hung around because it's been a, a way in which you can actually express certain things about, for example, about class. Um, it's, it's not comfortable for the left to think one of our antagonists, one of the reasons why they're able to recruit several different generations of supporters is because that antagonist has actually been talking to people um, often in, you know, smaller towns, often quite depressed areas about class. We haven't been talking to people. Um, but I think that's a lot of what's been going on. So I think um, I think um, Flaff went in the right way and I think they used culture in the right way. But it's just that's the sort of battle which takes quite a lot of time to win. In terms of more broadly, I mean, more broadly, I mean, Grime wasn't going to defeat the DFLA, but it, it, it's had its cultural moment. It had its cultural moment with Corbynism, where suddenly it seemed to be converting just lots of young voters into Labour voters. And again, one of the things I'm trying to get sort of see is that the anti-fascist politics in the present day isn't necessarily about um, um, small groups of people ch- chasing after another small group of people. It's not about, you know, 20 members of this, this particular I don't know, whatever 
far right self, we're actually in a moment where because the centre right has relationships with the far right, sometimes you need anti-fascists to have a, a vocabulary and have, have an ambition talking about mass politics, which is affecting millions, because the centre right's relationship with the far right is having the impact on a far broader scale than, than we realise. We, we need to be trying to resist that too. Um, and then finally, in, in essence, what's the, is there like a, a general medium of cultural intervention um, well, that, that could play an analogous role to music in the 70s today? And I think if there is, it's probably internet culture. That's probably the thing which more people spend their time on. And again, if you historicize music, and, and I'm, one reason why I'm historicizing music is because I'm just, I'm 48 years old. I don't know what's what, what music people listen to now. Really, I'm too fucking old. So all I can do is look back at things which happened before and try and historicize them in relationship to the present. But but the reality is, is that, you know, when there's certain albums which came out in 1968 or 1978, and when they, they came out, um, 15 million young people in Britain rushed off and bought them. Now, if there's anything, it seems to me, which has the same sort of generalizing, you know, um, experience. It's the Doge memes. So it is. Or it's cats. I mean, I'm sorry, you know. Or, or it's even from them. It's the success they've had. Bloody Pepe the Frog, you know. So it, it's got. To, you know, we should have a notion that the anti-fascists should be in a relationship with internet mass cultural producers, and those internet mass, mass cultural producers should be people capable of talking to millions. Um, and if you know, if you're if you're a leftist and you're trying to change how people think. And the limit of your ambitions is, can I get an opinion piece in the garden? He says, holding his hand up for guilty at this point. You know, you're settling for a pretty small audience compared to some of the audience which, you know, some parts of the left have been able to win, sometimes quite a temporary way, but have been able to win at times in the last five and ten years. Yeah, I think of one example of, of I'm, out, I'm not moving, uh, one example of this, it was the, the Statue Defender protest and the counter-protest last year, uh, 2020, in which, you know, after there was this big street uh, statue defender mobilization that was called quite organically on on the right and in the same circles of the DFLA, we had kind of a withdrawal of anti-fascist, officially constituted anti-fascist groups and like uh, official BLM groups that were organizing as well. And instead, you just had this wave of uh, self-organized almost or like kind of unofficially organized uh, young black people and young people in general come out and, and stand up to these people uh, in central London. So... There is a... well, look, look, for me, for me, it's not even that. It's Colston. You know, Colston is a mass cultural moment. It's that the pulling down that statue. How many people in Britain? How many people around the world saw um, that statue go into the water? I mean, that's that isn't that the sort of thing we would be trying to have a relationship with. It's not wave two, wave three of that process. It's wave one. It's it's that statue coming down. That was our moment. Um, and you know, I'm quite sure there were anti-fascists in that crowd. I wasn't sure that it wasn't they weren't the only people in the crowd you know there were a lot of different people in that crowd but but it, it's kind of how do you create that those sorts of moments which which then have an impact on people's consciousness and then then potentially um shape all of our collective idea of what's possible well i mean actually that's really true when once that statue went in the in the water it was done like it wasn't going to get put up and get restored and you know it went to a museum where it belonged a long time ago and, and that's that, the, those irreversible moments i think yeah that's really interesting actually i think maybe i'm going to say something kind of pessimistic from the vantage point of anti-fascism but like quite optimistic from the point of like anti-racism uh which is um i see anti-fascism as a more as like um but anti-fascism is like a very specialized form uh of uh, a broader anti-racist movement and in some ways this is what makes me uneasy about your book because it's in some ways a, a fairly, and you, you make an argument at the end of the book, in the conclusion, about specifically the popularity of the argument that you're making. So you say that people will understand, or if it, the targets are well chosen, people have a kind of natural inclination towards the uh, prohibitions on the speech of fascists. They understand why they're necessary and they, they agree with it. And this I think is true, but in some ways, the reason why you're writing the book is because people don't have just that inclination, right? The reason why the book is having to be written in the first place is because actually people think that lots of other speech um, should be silenced. Anti-fascism is a increasingly junior part of this relationship between anti-fascist and anti-racist movements. 
And if we're going to talk about kind of the appearance or the, the necessity of having a social base to back up your politics and to have a kind of mass movement that agrees with what you are doing, then I think we need to look no further to our kinds of cousins or something, right, in the anti-racist movements, which are massive. I mean, like, it's not just... That, so that, that, that Colson statue didn't come down in the context of like a anti-DFLA thing. It didn't come down in the context of an anti-EDL thing, right? It came down in the context of Black Lives Matter. And that's quite significant. And I think it was read as such. Um, and this is why I find it kind of uneasy to rest the argument eventually on the idea of having a mass base, because what the mass base is telling us is participants in, anti in anti-racist movements are telling us by and large that there is a, a an urgency for for a, an expanded view of deplatforming. Okay. Um, again, two or three things there. First of all, um, if it's right that we're in a moment when um, anti-fascism is and is going to be the junior partner in relation to anti-racism, personally, I have no problem with that whatsoever. No, right. No, no. That's why I say that. I, 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 no, I want to vocalise this to the anti-fascists who listen to this. This is a good thing. Um, this is a desirable state to be in. Um, it comes about because actually um, fascism is not a consider is not a significant polar at this particular moment in terms of how the right and the far right are operating. It, it because it's coming about because in this moment, um, not just a um, the far right's relatively marginal, but b people can see it's marginal. And I would much rather be in a situation where anti-fascists can say, well, that we're keeping our, um, how about a different military analogy? We, you know, we are the Irish volunteers at the end of the First World War who have achieved um, independence for Ireland and, they, and they've got all their guns and they're now they're getting their wall plaster and they're plastering over the walls. So you can't see the guns anymore, but they're there. Because actually the specific anti-fascist component isn't so necessary. Now, I, I quite like that. I like that because it's a sign that the far right's doing badly. Um, one anti-fascist um, a long ago put it to me, so the thing about anti-fascism, it always gets revived just a little bit too late. And we're in a moment where it isn't too late. And we're in a moment where, you know, we can sort of keep things on a much less. And that's good. And we should, we should, you know, we should all think, you know, we can allow different parts of our personality. Stress. This is desirable and great. But on your other point, I think far more important point, which is the audience. Um, Okay, part of what I'm saying in the book, I suppose, is there's more than one audience. You're now invoking an audience, which is the very large number of anti-racists saying, look, if we can just shut up racist speech, we can stop them talking, we've won, haven't we? And I agree with you, if you read that audience, then that is what they want. Um, the mass anti-racist audience wants racist speech to stop. And again, totally get why they do, yeah? And to, to go along that and say, oh, we should be discriminating within this, we should be choosing carefully, we should be selecting which gets the racist get to speak. That racist should be continued out to be. I, I can get if that was what the argument was, I can get why most why lots of people wouldn't want to listen to it. But the thing is, there's more than one audience. <laughs> um, there's also another audience of people, which is the 50% of people who aren't particularly political, who don't really have strong views about anything. And the truth is that if you um if you push the hate speech argument um, past the breaking point, on break, past the point where you're winning enough of that audience, then you start losing. So there's a tactical argument against hate speech, which is that you ask the state to intervene on your side, and then lo and behold, wait a second, the state's intervening against you. And you get surprised by this. Now, one of the reasons why the state's able to intervene against you is because of the people watching, um, suddenly a bunch of them thinking this has gone too far. Now, it is really not the argument of my book that, that you kind of sit there as an activist going, right, you know, have we got all of liberal public opinion assembled behind us? If we don't have all of liberal public opinion assembled behind us, we can do nothing. But it isn't an argument of my book that you need to, that, that it is still, while doing the most radical things possible at any moment, it is still also actually desirable to have public opinion behind you. Um, that you shouldn't use this as, as a break or as an excuse for inaction, but it's just good and sensible politics. And that if you've got a sense of the cultural politics at the moment, you can do 
really quite um, brave and dangerous and radical things and people won't mind. Now, an example um, I've often used and I've used with you two on podcasts before is the punch against Richard Spencer. Um, I really like the fact that tens of millions of people around the world identified and proved for that punch. I'm not going to say you needed to have all their support lined up in advance in order to do that punch. I'm not saying that, that, that public opinion is an excuse for an action, but I'm saying if you're going to do that militant and radical thing anyway, it is desirable that if it connects to people's aspirations and ambitions and motivates them and gives them the energy to want to go on doing stuff themselves. Because that's a sort of ideal dynamic where the most left-wing or radical, whatever adjective you want to use, action available in a moment becomes attractive to other people and mobilises other people. So it's desirable to have a sense of your relationship with the audience. And my point is just, you know, to go back to that point, the point I always make is there were things going on in that moment, which meant that a whole bunch of people who weren't that left wing were able to get that this was an anti-fascist um, action and therefore wanted to share it. And those things which made it feel incredibly contemporary, you know, I've done the list before, they are. The fact that it's not just a punch, that it's their speech and you can understand. The fact that Spencer comes over smirking and hideous. The fact he's so off, he, he's pretending not to be a Nazi and he's so obviously pretending. All that total package makes it work. But I want a moment where, you know, things like that um, connect to people's hopes and ambitions and make them become, you know, activists and contribute to struggle too. And if your politics is, you know, saying at the moment, you know, if your justification was, you know, I'm all in favour of, I'm trying to think of a sort of bad example of this. Um, I'm all in favour of every time a minister speaks, we should call them a racist and say their speech must be taken down. I'd say in the present moment, that action sounds tremendously radical, but it's not going to connect to the mass of people. And it's not going to connect to the mass of people because people aren't going to accept that Boris Johnson is racist in that in the way you're termed that you're using the word racist, that a racist who is so unacceptable, they're never allowed to speak. So if that's your strategic perspective, I'm going to say to you, I think that's a bad perspective. But that doesn't mean that where I'm going to draw the line, therefore, is that I'm less of an activist or I'm less militant than you. What I'm going to say is I've got better ideas for struggle which can involve more people in protests and can make protests more effective and more dynamic and actually be more left-wing. And it's, it's that totality of different approach that I'm trying to convey. So it, it, it's, not, it's not about bringing back anti-fascism when people don't particularly want to be anti-fascists. It's about learning the best lessons of anti-fascism and expressing them in our moment when there aren't that many people wandering around in Nazi uniforms but but the basic core ideas of the book, which are, um, you know, aim big in terms of changing society, which are um, we've got some enemies out there and they need to be defeated. Those all still apply, even in a context where the, the, the ideological justification, the, the central poles, the spearhead of, of the far right isn't actually fascist. I have uh, lots more things I would like to come back on, but I feel like we've gone on long enough. Thank you very much. David, uh, for coming, um, go and get the book. It's out from Routledge. Yes, no free speech. Fascist. It is. Yeah. Yes. It's. Sorry, a, I just nodded. This is again like we're doing a podcast. What on earth is the point of nodding on a podcast? You can nod if you want. I mean, um, uh, we. I, I, there'll be an audio described version. Uh, you've already done the kind of the oh, grimacing. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sam is looking very handsome today. Uh, you know, Sam. Um, Anyway, thank you very much for coming, David. <laughs> and um, we'll see you very soon. Uh, and listen, thanks so much for inviting me. And again, uh, am I allowed to ask? Is this like really cheeky? How long is it till your thing comes out? Oh, uh, two weeks. We, we, thank you for reminding us to plug our content. Oh, oh, God, oh yes, that was what you were doing. Right. Um, it's like, so no, it, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm not asking you to plug your content. I'm asking you to tell me as a potential reader, because you, you two have been involved in a really exciting writing project. You have a very interesting podcast where you invite all these other people on, but actually you two write too, and you two got something important coming out, and it's coming out relatively soon. September oh the 6th. Is September the 6th. Post <laughs> and then the second oh, right. one is... When's the second? February 2022. Okay, that's, that's not well, for a while. 
seriously good luck because i've read the one from september i'm sure you will get to, to plug it later in in this podcast or something after i've gone but just you know me to anyone listening listen it is good i've read it and thanks a lot for listening if you enjoyed that then you can go over to patreon where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that we're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff you can read along with us we'll talk about it we'll have regular zoom calls it'll be great fun and on the higher tier we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop that's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what all the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project and thanks a lot for listening again and i'll see you very soon in the eyes of the government we are the enemy in a world where there is no government anarchy rules this summer, get ready for the most action-packed podcast. We continue fighting because we hate all authority and love freedom, which cannot be given, but must be taken. Such scenes as, this is not a dialogue, a crime called freedom, parties over, and text and audio material of interest to anarchists check out resonanceaudiodistro.org 12 rules <laughs> <laughs>